My heart is stirred this morning um, as we're worshiping, especially those words of that bridge right there. There's no wall you won't kick down. There's no shadow you won't light up. There's nothing that you will keep you from coming after me. And my prayer continues to be for revival for our church and for a deeper breakthrough, not just, um, not just a deep and quiet revival, but one that spills out. Because revival, people see it. People smell it. They can sense it in a place. And my prayer is that revival would just spill out and that it would result in salvation and baptisms and people coming to this place and this room filled out. Because there's a message. There's a gospel here. And I believe it needs to be heard by more and more. Amen. Amen. So listen, we're starting a new series today. We're starting a new series. The 21 days, it concluded yesterday. I'm so thankful that Paul was able to kind of plug what happened yesterday. It didn't have to come from my voice. It really was truly awesome. Um, you had a multi-ethnic environment, people praying for each other, people crying, not just crying out, but crying, literally. Um, and it was powerful. And some of that happens on Wednesday nights as well. And um, I've been benefiting from that kind of revival culture. And, yeah. And uh, yeah, I just want to continue to encourage just that joint participation. It's a good thing. Good stuff happens. Um, we're rubbing off on each other in good ways. Um, and a lot of work goes on behind the scenes as well in this community. Um, typically, I take my Mondays off, but ever since we joined Kingdom City, what I know what this wire. I'll plug it in all the way and do that right now. Plugging and turning. All right. Banished. And um, Mondays, what happens is we go, we have... Um, Kingdom City meetings, and sometimes they're like five hours long. And I want you to know a lot of work goes behind the scenes. Unity is not an easy thing. It doesn't, you, don't, you don't just ram a bunch of people in together under one roof, and it happens. Unity requires a lot of work. And there is, you know, I used to, on Sunday afternoons after church, I would go out for like a run. I'd do four, sometimes six miles. But these days, I have to make sure I rest on Sunday afternoons because Monday is another marathon day. And so um, there's, there's a lot of good work going on behind the scenes that is, I think, leading to this revival culture in this place. Amen. The new series that we're starting today is called Oikonomica, which translates economics. So we're starting a series on money. Today, I conferred with my staff and volunteer leaders, and I said, what do, you think, what do you think if we started this series about money and economics and some of the stuff I'm learning in school these days? And they said, that sounds great. Um, Bo has a, a master's in finance, master's in finance or an MBA or something. And so he was like, that would be really exciting, and there's some ideas that we're talking about. And so today, I'd like to dabble, and, and I, I know very little about money and economics. If you wanted to talk about taxes or if you wanted to talk about investments and, you know, and, um, uh, you know future planning and all of those things, I really don't know a lot. I don't. Um, but I've been learning these days through my own studies. And these things, I think, are big, transformative, life-transforming principles. And so this series, we're going to talk about economics, not just the money talk, not just the stuff about how can we you know, 
fill the coffers for Woven's own you know, tithing and giving. Not so much that. Not so much that. More so talking about things like how do we serve the poor with money? Um, what does it mean to place value on things? Um, what kind of markets are best for society? Um, what does capital do to a society? What does wise investing look like? What does globalization, how does globalization, especially, I mean, globalization right here in Kingdom City, so many different people and, and all this trade and commerce, how does it affect the way that we do work today? And how does my work, not my work as a pastor, but your work, Monday to Friday, translate to mission? I had a conversation this past week. I was in Denver, Colorado, uh, with a thousand pastors for our annual midwinter conference of the Evangelical Covenant Church. And a friend of mine, he's in L.A., and just like myself, he's ordained in the Covenant Church. He has the, he has the glorified scarf and everything. But uh, he doesn't work in a church. He also, when, he also, I think he has an MBA, so he's working in business as well. And so this guy, he's talking about, he's telling me the complexities of, on the one hand, preaching the gospel, but on the other hand, working for the military-industrial complex, making weapons for the military. How do you reconcile those things? How does the gospel speak to the reality of life that all of you are going to face tomorrow morning, whether it's in the military-industrial complex, or whether it's in raising your children, or whether it's working in medicine? By the way, we're still, the, by the way, the, the med center uh, devotions, I know that stirred up some, man, you're, you know, you, our pastor's really trying to stick his finger in it. Pastor, why don't you just stay in your lane? You don't know what you're talking about. You know, I've been sending out these emails daily um, to the uh, people who are in the medical industry trying to kind of tell people how to do their job or trying to, st you know, st stick into, you know, my car's veering into their lane a little bit. By the way, I'm doing that because I'm getting credit for it. Um, so I'm getting credit for it. It's going towards my paper. Uh, but somebody suggested you could keep doing that maybe once a week, not every day. And if you did that, it would still be helpful to us. And that's something I'm open to, provided that you will share the email with one other person in the medical industry. If we, can, if we can get this word out to more people, then I'll continue to do it. Anyway, stay in your lane, Pastor. You don't know what you're talking about. Economics, you have no idea. Cost per barrel, I'm like, what's the cost per barrel these days? You know, it's like, as if I know what I'm talking about. Yeah, we're at $50 or $60. That's cool. <laughs> what do I know? Stay in your lane. The thing is, I can't stay in my lane. And I won't. You know why? Because the gospel is not just about Sunday. The Christian message is not, it's, in fact, it's nothing if it doesn't have anything to do with what we do for a living Monday to Friday. If the Christian message is just about what happens on Sunday and just about holy, quote-unquote, holy stuff, then everything that you do your studies, your life, if that's not holy, then what, 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 why are we even here? What's the scope? What's the purpose of the gospel if it can't touch everything? And so this series, Economics, it's going to try to take a stab. It's going to try to take a stab at this thing, that this, this idol, money. Don't even touch it. Let's not even have anything to do with money. Let's not even talk about economics because it's dirty. It's unspiritual. And this idea that money, that economics is unspiritual, this is something that is 
it's almost this unspoken assumption in the church that once we start talking about money, we're, it's like using the dirty word. And if we're going to talk about economics, if we're going to talk about money, it's important for us to address this unspoken assumption that economics, money, it's a dirty word. If you're rich, if you're rich, then you really are, you've joined um, the dark side. Let's talk about that. Because unless we address that underlying silent, that silent assumption, we won't be able to get very far. This series will not be able to get very far because the truth of the matter is when I look out here, a lot of us, we really are the 1% of the world. You know what I mean by that, right? A lot of us are the rich young rulers. Many of us really are, uh, by global standards, the quote-unquote wealthy. And so in light of that, we have to ask ourselves, how do we get into the kingdom of God? If money is a dirty word, if the rich don't get into the kingdom, then what does this mean? And that's why the title of today's sermon, if you see in your notes, it's uh, that, that little blurb is, how do the king rich dumb? How do the king rich dumb? You catch that little word play there? How do we get the rich inside the kingdom? How do we get the rich inside the kingdom? Because quite frankly, uh, I would include myself in the category of the rich. If it's true that we are the world's 1% and we are the rich, that means, if we draw this conclusion out, we're pretty much, all of us in this room, going to, you know, when the big elevator comes for us, you're not going up, we're going down. So what does this mean? How do we get the rich into the kingdom of God? And for this, we have to address this foundational assumption that the rich can't get into the kingdom of God, that money is a dirty word. And for that, we need to wrestle with verses like Mark chapter 10, verse 25. And so if you have your scripture, look at that verse, Mark chapter 10, verse 25. Here we have a passage that made me so uncomfortable when I was about 21 years old. If I'm honest, I'll just tell you up front, I had my college tuition paid off by my dad. I was working for a family business that was making good money at that time. I didn't have a mortgage to pay off at 21 years old. I just had money accruing in my account that I could use on God knows what. And I identified with the story of the rich young ruler. It made me very uncomfortable because in verse 25 of Mark 10, Jesus says, oh, how hard it is for the rich to enter into the kingdom of God. You know, in fact, and Jesus gives an analogy, he says, you know what it's like? It's like a camel going through the eye of a needle. In fact, it's easier for a camel, huge camel, to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, if you're like me, it's hard enough even putting a thread, I'm like putting a thread through the needle's eye, let alone a camel. And you're thinking, how are we going to get a camel? Right? Is there, some, is there some trick? Is there some kind of an escape clause? Or maybe if I just really push that needle really hard on the camel, maybe there's some kind of an escape. Maybe there's, a, you know, some, there's some scholars who've made a case um, this case, in the last 100, 200 years, some scholars, they've said there's a way to get the camel through the needle's eye. 
and they've, there's, there's some research that's done, archaeological research, even to this day, uh, there are some doors in Jerusalem, some type of doors. Uh, it's kind of like if you've seen in like a Monty Python movie or something, where you come up to the castle, and there's this gigantic gate. And the gate is so heavy, you have one person that comes up and says, please, sir, let me in. And they don't want to open up the whole gate. We only open up the double gates if there is large trains, large groups, if there are freights coming through, if there are camel trains coming through. But if there's just one person that comes up and you don't want to open both of the large city gates, the gates of Jerusalem, they'll have a small porter's gate. You know what I'm talking about? So instead of opening up the big double gates, there's one small gate, and they'll open that, you know, it's easy, and then you can let that one, you know, person in. That one man or one woman can come in through that gate. And it's purported, it's guessed, that that is called the needle's eye. The needle's eye. And conceivably, a camel could fit through that needle's eye if that camel took off all of its goods and baggage, and if that camel humbly stooped and kneeled, the camel could fit and squeeze through that needle's eye. What do you guys think about that? There's hope. Actually, here's the problem with that interpretation. It's about a thousand years too late. In terms of biblical exegesis, uh, the first mention of a door in any part of Israel called the needle's eye was a thousand years after the story of Jesus. And even then, it was speculative. The first mention of a door called the needle's eye is a thousand years too late. On top of that, um, there is very little archaeological evidence that dates back to the earliest times that such a door existed and was called the needle's eye. Now, there are doors like that, but we cannot date all the way back to the time of Jesus as saying this and say conclusively that there existed such a door called the needle's eye. There's very, very little evidence for this. On top of that, we don't have to be scholars in Indiana Jones and do archaeological evidence. If we read the scope of this passage, if we read the arc of the narrative, it doesn't seem like Jesus is making a concession here. Do you know what I mean? When you read this, it doesn't sound like he's saying, oh, if you take off your baggage and you stoop, then maybe you'll squeeze through. I don't think that's what he's saying. I mean, hear these words. I mean, look at, look at Mark chapter 10. I mean, he says how hard it is for a rich person to enter in the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. The sense that I'm getting here is Jesus is not making a concession that somehow there is a way. I think what he means is what he means. It is impossible. It's not possible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And if you've read it that way, I think you've read it the right way because even his, even his disciples responded in verse 26 with more astonishment, saying, who can be saved? Do you see what I'm saying? 
If you're responding with the question, then it's impossible. I'm, when the great elevator comes from me, I'm going down. There's no way for me to go to heaven. You've actually heard Jesus the right way because that's how the disciples heard him. In verse 26, who can be saved? There's no way any of us, whether you're in the top 1% or you're in the top 5%, there's no way any of us can be saved. And we have to wrestle with this. We have to wrestle with this. Anybody who's read the Gospels, listen, you know, we just did, we just did Sunday school this morning before, before, we, before service. And um, the, student, the students are reading really deeply. And I like that. That's what I want, to read deeply. If you've read the Gospels really, really deeply, you will walk away with the impression that the Christian Gospel is not rich-friendly. It is not rich-friendly. And that's that unspoken word that I'm talking... That's that underlying assumption that I'm talking about. The sense that money is a dirty word, that the rich people really are only to be resented. Really, that means we deserve all, all of the, all of the you know, resentment. But there is something here. There is more. Because in verse 27, Jesus responds to the disciples, you've understood me correctly, it is impossible. With people, it's impossible. With people, it's impossible. What does he say after that? With God, all things are possible. With people, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Do you hear what that says? What that's saying is that the rich cannot get into the kingdom of God, but God can do anything. And if God can do whatever he does, there is a possibility for the rich to enter into the kingdom of God, but it's going to require two things. It's going to require two things. The first thing it's going to require is some kind of strong reckoning, some strong discipleship, some huge sacrifice. It's going to require some strong discipleship. But the second thing it's going, to do, it's going to require is some kind of a redefinition of wealth and money. And that's what we're attempting to do here today. I'll say that again. It's impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom of God, but with God, all things are possible. But if we, are, if we are walking with a God who does the impossible, that means you're going to become some kind of a Christian monk or something. It's going, to, it's going to wreck and change your life radically. And it means your understanding of your money is radically going to change. Allow me to illustrate and see if I can drive this home. And um, I'm going to go out on a tangent here. Um, it's a little bit risky what I'm about to say. And I conferred with the staff, and they heard this, and, and, and um, I asked, do you guys think I should talk about this? And they said, if you land the plane well, then it'll make sense. It'll be good. So hopefully I won't screw this illustration up. But it is very sensitive. You know, I, just, I told you I just came back I just came back from Denver, Colorado, from my denomination's annual pastor's gathering. And um, 
I've served faithfully in my denomination in the last six years, seven years, and those six or seven years have also been some of the most tumultuous times of our denomination. The Covenant Church is a beautiful, beautiful body, probably the most multi-ethnic, diverse um, community of believers, uh, in, re, probably the most diverse uh, of any denomination in North America, the most empowering, the most justice-sensitive, um, really cutting-edge place to be. In the last six or seven years, there have been some voices within the denomination that have said, great, as a church, we do, um, we do racial unity well. We do justice well. We do compassion and mercy well. Now we're ready to become fully open and affirming in terms of human sexuality. And this has prompted some study. This has prompted not some, I don't want to use the word backlash. That's not it at all. Because the covenant people, as, as an ethos, we're, we're people that listen, that, 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 that remain open, that we hold diversity in tension. And as we've listened to some of these kind of appeals that we should um, be a denomination that is fully open and affirming, in some senses we are open. We do love all people. We do affirm that all people are made in the image of God. Then therefore that we should also be a church that actively, in terms of our, our practice, is also performing um, Unions, same-sex unions, and that is also ordaining, practicing clergy persons who are from this lifestyle. The thing is, if you would just, if you would just hang with me on this, my personal belief, I think, reflects the belief of the denomination at large. When somebody tells me when I discover someone, or not discover, but when it's, when it's, when it's, when it's, when it's uh, disclosed to me that someone has same-sex attraction, that is not something that I think is a choice. That is not something that I think is fixable, quote-unquote. I think that is, a, that is an offensive way to speak to somebody. I certainly don't believe and am against the idea of conversion therapy. I think this is destructive to somebody. I would not tell somebody if they disclosed to me that they had same-sex tendencies. I would not disclose to them and tell them that they needed to change or repent. I would not tell them that they were wrong or in darkness. I would not do that. I would love that person until the end be their friend and their pastor and their guide. I would stay with them till the end. However, I also affirm the sanctity of marriage. Not in the eyes of the state, that's a different story, but in the eyes of God. I affirm the sanctity of marriage in the eyes of God as between a man and a woman. I affirm the sanctity of marriage in the eyes of God and my understanding of Scripture as a heterosexual union. Faithfulness, that sexuality is lived out in faithfulness in marriage and heterosexual marriage and celibacy in singleness. Now, friends, I'm sorry, I 
feels like I've dropped a bomb there. But this is where I want to tie it back to this question of discipleship and money. What does that mean then for the person who lives in the reality of same-sex attraction? What this means then is that for them, pastor, you're telling me then that means the rest of my life I have to live celibate and single. That's a tall expectation. How dare you expect that of me? But the thing is, when we're talking about tall expectations, friends, it's not just for the gay community alone. It's for all of us. Tall expectations means for the rich, you have to in some way hold your money in a different alternative way. It means for the Muslim who's converting to the Christian faith that they basically turn their back completely on their family. It means that for the person who has a child out of wedlock, no, you cannot abort that child. You must bear that child and carry that cross because for every single person who chooses to follow Jesus, it's not just a matter of showing up on Sunday and having wonderful times of worship. No, there is huge sacrifice. In some ways, our our, our gay brothers and sisters are closer to Jesus than any of us because they experience this longing for intimacy and closeness. And yet, at the feet of Jesus, they find that, they place that before Him. Friends, let they not be the only ones that are learning what it means to follow Jesus. Because I'll tell you the truth. I'll tell you the truth. There are people in the covenant church who do have same-sex attraction and they live out their discipleship and celibacy and in singleness out of faithfulness to their God. Not to the denomination, not to me, but to their God. That's how they live that out. And friends, I'm not decreeing this over anybody in this room. I know how hard it is for me to follow Jesus and the things that I've had to sacrifice to follow Jesus. I'm just saying that for one man or one woman, if they're sacrificing intimacy in order to follow Jesus, in the same way some of us are sacrificing community or family connections, some of us are sacrificing our notions of money, And therefore, in the end, what I'm saying is ultimately this. If your discipleship and following Jesus does not have any skin in it in the game, if it does not have any teeth to that calling, if there isn't this burning sense that I want to just live out my life, I want to just go that way, I just want to be rich and filthy rich and do this, if you don't have that sense of burning discipleship, then we must examine how deeply we're reading the Gospels. And if the story of Jesus is wrecking us to the point where we realize I really am a rich young something. That there is something in my life that in order to follow Jesus has to be laid at the altar. Friends, this is what we're talking about. This is how that ties back into money. I don't know if I did that successfully or not, but that is the denomination stance. What I'm falling on is that discipleship for all of us has to mean something. And as a church, we're asking questions in 2019 for this third mission priority, holistic outreach. How are we really reckoning with our use of money? What does justice really look like? Last night we prayed about justice for a church like us. Sure, we do insightful teaching well. Sure, we do intentional discipleship. We're intentional about it. But the holistic outreach component means that radical living 
is coming up for us as a community. So what does radical living look like? You know, I'm going to bring us to this second money story and then wrap up with some principles. Luke chapter 19, there's a really interesting story. In Luke chapter 19, there's a story of a rich man, a rich man named Zacchaeus. And didn't Jesus just say that only, only uh, that, that, that the rich cannot enter into the kingdom of God? In the story of Zacchaeus, there's a man, he was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Luke chapter 19, verse 2. How does Jesus approach this rich man, and how are things different, and what does he sacrifice Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and he was unable because of the crowd for he was small in stature. So Zacchaeus ran on ahead and he climbed into a sycamore tree in order to see Jesus for he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received Jesus gladly. And everybody saw it and they were grumbling and saying, Jesus has gone to be, how can he be the guest of a, of a sinner, of a guy like that? Of somebody like that? Right? Don't we say that in the church pretty well? But Jesus, I'm sorry, Zacchaeus stops probably overhearing some of those mumblings in verse 8. And he says, behold, Lord, half of my possessions I'll give to the poor. If I've defrauded anybody, anything, I will give back four times as much. So he's saying 50% and four times over. Friends, I want you, I don't want you to, I want you to hear carefully what I'm saying. When we're talking about this economic series, we're not necessarily talking about more giving. We're not necessarily talking about more giving. That's not the objective. But we are talking about an alternative understanding of money. And when it comes to discipleship with Jesus, that's not off the table. That's not off the table. That's not off the table. If more giving is the answer, if that's the pathway, then do it. Do it. You don't, don't even do it to woven, right? Don't even do it to woven. If you're convicted in your discipleship, just like everybody has to have a discipleship conviction, if you are convicted, fair, you know what? Fair enough. Don't give it to woven. That, that way, I want you to understand that's not where I'm coming from in this series. But the point of this is not just to say more, give more. I think the point of this is to say, indeed, the rich can enter into the kingdom of God. But it involves strong discipleship and an alternative view of wealth. Strong discipleship and an alternative view of wealth. That is what I want to happen in Woven. Strong discipleship, strong followership of Jesus and an alternative view of money. That's what I want to happen. Because what Jesus says in verse 10, I'm sorry, verse 9 of Luke 19, rounds it off. Today salvation has come to this house. So a rich man can enter into the kingdom of God. A rich man can enter into the kingdom of God. There's hope. Why? Because God just did the impossible in Zacchaeus' life. 
He just did the impossible in Zacchaeus' life. Here was a guy, he was a tax collector, which is pretty much a traitor. He was a sellout, taking his people's money, giving it to the Roman authorities, and he was rich by all rights and means. This person converted in a radical way. Now, you might ask the question, why is it that Jesus is satisfied with Zacchaeus' 50% and four times? And why with the rich young ruler, Jesus requested 100%? Do you get that? Why with Zacchaeus did he let him get away? Why did he let him keep his other 50%? You know, the reason I think is because Jesus knows how to play poker. I don't know how to play poker very well. But what little I do know about it is a good poker player does not only read his or her hand, but they also read the player sitting across from them. They know what kind of a person this is. And I think in that regard, Jesus knows if the player sitting across from him is able to go all in, has what it takes, or if the player is only a 50% person and so Jesus will up the ante. You don't have to be an all-in person. Sometimes it's too much. But we have to regularly meet it. When Jesus, in his discipleship of you, is beginning to up the ante, what does that mean? How are we meeting him as he ups the ante? Do we call? I'll call that. I'll see that. Or do we fold and just step out of the game forever? Or do we bluff? (laughs) Sometimes bluffing is a way to, you know, sometimes that that works in discipleship. Somehow we mistakenly find ourselves on the mission field or something. Whatever the case may be, Jesus shows us here in this story that rich men can enter. You know, and it doesn't just stop there. The early church was populated by rich people who kept their property. We know this because the church, the early church, when they were kicked out of the temple and people and the Jews were saying, you can't meet here anymore, they said, where do we meet? Where do we? Bob. Bob has a house. Let's meet at Bob's house. Well, Bob, 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 Bob Bob was martyred. Well, his wife is a wealthy Greek patroness. She didn't sell her all of her possessions and give to the poor. That's okay. We can meet in her house then. And so the church was built on the back of wealthy Greek patronesses. The rich do play a role. It doesn't just stop there. We have to, and I'm, gonna, I'm rounding third base here. When I talk about a different understanding of economics, when I talk about an alternative view, yes, we're, in one, on the one sense, we're talking about strong discipleship. What does that look like? What's sacrifice? But we're also talking about an alternative view of wealth. And what this means is we have to read the scriptures, but we also have to think strategically, how does my money further the kingdom of God? A beautiful case of this, is hang with me, I'm going to share a story here that I think is very terribly interesting, is this thing called usury. Usury is loaning. Loans. And what happened back in the day, all the way into the Old Testament, is if you had a poor farmer, you had a farmer, and let's say the season was really, really bad, his crops did not turn around, and he was in danger of starving. And so he goes to somebody and says, please, I need money for seed and for food so I can make it through this next season. And somebody says, I'll give you that money, but make sure you pay me back with 50% interest. And the Old Testament says, don't do that. That's wrong. 
Because what happens is when it comes around, this person, I mean, help me out here, math economists, how much more does he have to make then? That's like 150% more. Am I right? On top of his, of, of his take. It's designed, that kind of loaning, it's designed to ruin a person and in the end, take everything they own. I guess this is what you call today predatory lending. And usury was roundly condemned by the early church. And it was condemned, in fact, any notion of loaning with interest. They said, better to just give the money away. If somebody's poor, give it to them. Don't loan it. Loans, loans. You, how many of us have taken out a loan in, the, in our life to adulthood? You're all sinning according to this interpretation. We shouldn't loan. We shouldn't make a loan. We shouldn't receive a loan because loan, especially with interest, is, it's corrupt. But then you had many, many years later, around the 1500s, 1600s, please follow me. This is terribly interesting. Somebody named John Calvin. John Calvin lived in a part of France and a part of Europe, and he had a society, a city. He was not just a pastor, but he was also a statesperson. And he said, usury is bad. You cannot take out loans with 50% interest. But loans that are regulated with a reasonable amount of interest can actually be used as a motivating uh, infusion of capital into our local small business so that those businesses, if you say, I need an extra ox in order to turn out more stuff, and so you know, he'll take a loan, he'll get another ox. It promotes business, the growth of society. On top of that, it also promotes personal responsibility in my citizens. Because I want to see my citizens do well, and I want them also to have a moral sense. Because when you really have a, when you have a loan, uh, when you have an interest payment on that, you realize, I, I have to do decent work. I have to go to work. And so instead of drinking meat and carousing or something, you know, they, went, they, they, they said, i, I got to wake up tomorrow morning because I have to pay off my interest. And with reasonable amounts of interest, the, res the result was Calvin's Geneva, the city, was one of the first modern cities for the practice, really, the birth of capitalism as we know it. There's a sociologist named Max Weber who even looked and studied Calvin and other Protestant reformers and said it was people like that that started modern-day capitalism as we know it today. He actually, that was more of a critique. He was not happy with that. Friends, Ultimately, what we're saying is here you took a commonly, a conventional understanding of money, but you had people thinking deeply and profoundly about it. And the result was a transformation of a society. Do I have an agenda with this series? Yes, and it is not filling Woven's coffers. My agenda is the transformation of this city through our use of money. The transformation of a city through wise, strategic use of economics. And so I want to close with three principles. 
And these three guiding principles, the fill in the blanks in your notes, these three principles are going to be the foundation for this entire series. They're going to be the new operating assumptions. So whereas previously the operating assumption was that money is a dirty word, rich is evil and going to hell, and they're all the enemy and fight the power. Now, whereas that was the operating assumption, let's be a little bit more nuanced now and let's replace those with new foundational assumptions that will change the way that we as a church and we as individuals and families do money. And these three foundational assumptions are number one. In the economics of God's kingdom, I think we can agree. If we've read the scriptures, I think we can agree that in God's economy, the poor come first. The poor come first. The poor will always come first. And this is something, this is something that, that, that some, some, some uh, Christian thinkers, they, they, they named the preferential option for the poor. I mean, if you're really digging this message, write that down. Preferential option for the poor. The preferential option for the poor is basically exactly what it sounds like, preferencing the poor first before anything else. If we're going to build a pipeline going all the way up to Canada, do it. Do it. But think first, how does this affect the poor? And if the poor are clamoring and saying, this is a problem for us, I'm all for building the pipeline, but preference the poor. Because as these teachers say, the moral test of any society, the moral test is how it treats the most vulnerable members. How the society treats its most vulnerable members is, that's you can take the pulse of a nation. Where's my pulse? <laughs> no pulse. How, do we, how is, there, is there a pulse? The pulse is how we preference the poorest. Now, you're probably getting a little nervous because you're saying, Pastor Wayne, you're starting to sound like a socialist here. Right? This gets to the second principle. This is the second guiding principle for this series. The best way to serve the poor is to create wealth. The best way to create poor, uh, to cr the, the best way to serve the poor is not to redistribute wealth. Because I think something that hundreds of years, the last hundreds of years, a few hundreds of years of economics have taught us is economics is not a zero-sum game. In other words, it's not like there are only 10, 10 pounds, 10 pesos out there in the world. And if I take seven of those pesos, I'm taking away more pesos from these people. That's not how economics works today. It's not a zero-sum game where if I grab more, somebody has less. That's incorrect. That was the assumption in ancient times. There's a limited amount of silver pieces and gold pieces. And if you're hoarding more silver and gold, there's less for others. But it doesn't work that way today. It does not work that way. Actually, we have charts. You can search this up online. Um, what was the web website? I failed to look it over. Um, I want to say it was like the WHO or something. It shows that in the, the growth of globalization around the world, the increase of capital in society, 
with trade, now that's not happening just within one country, but across borders, what's happening is the gap between the rich and the poor is getting greater, extremely greater than it ever was. But in the process, now I'm not saying the rich should get extremely rich, but what is happening in the process is the floor is rising. So while the gap, is, the gap between rich and poor is increasing, the poor are also undisputedly more wealthier, if I can call it that, than they were even 25 years ago. So what we're seeing is that the bottom line is growing as wealth is created. I'm not saying go out and be a tycoon and make as much money as you can. What I'm saying is lifting up the poor out of poverty requires not just throwing money at them. That's a zero-sum mentality. It requires creating wealth for all. Not a redistribution of wealth. Again, zero-sum game. What it requires is creating wealth for all. You know what this, how this affects Woven? Is when we talk about holistic outreach, and one of the things we're talking about is starting up. You know, we do our community group every weekend. We do our community group every weekend. We're talking together with, with, uh, with our staff and volunteer leaders and Andrew about how we can do once a month, instead of just meeting in each other's homes, how can we serve in the community? What are some service projects that we can do? Because we have to understand as a church, our job is not just to throw money at problems. Our job is to create wealth in a way so that the poor can also be lifted up. What we want to do what we want to do with money is to be able to create more money so that others can flourish. First principle, the poor come first. Second principle, the best way to serve the poor is to create wealth. And finally, the third and last principle, therefore, the pursuit of wealth is appropriate and reasonable if the primary motivation is to serve the poor. How does that change my perspective on my, my money? It's reasonable, it's okay, it's appropriate to pursue wealth if the primary motivation is to serve the poor. How does my money that I make today not belong to me, but it belongs to the poor? Pastor, that sounds like socialism. No, that's Christian, that's basic. And I'm not saying that we're redistributing, please. In fact, if you understand what I'm saying, it's more capitalistic than it is anything else. Because if I see that my money, it's not my money, it's not your money, that's basic Christian teaching, it's God's. But I think God has no problem with sharing that with the poor. So if I'm saying I'm making money, six-figure salary, fine, do it. But how is that purposed intentionally in the end of the day to serve the poor? So that my life is a living sacrifice for God's mission purposes in the world. Um, Shane Willard preached the first Sunday here at that joint service and he talked about tithing 10% to the church and then tithing 10% back to myself uh, this whole idea of saving and over the years compounding interest resulting in your own savings account whether it's for your co- ch- children's college tuition or for your own retirement whatever the case may be I think there's deep 
Hebrew wisdom behind that. I think he's right. But we're not just talking about percentages here, 10 and 20. We're talking about how does the rest of my wealth um, ultimately motivate in motivation serve the poor. So you see, really, maybe this is just an English major's trick, and I'm just switching around words here, <laughs> that um, how are we serving, what, what are we doing with the rest of our money? Uh, really, is it for me or is it for somebody else? I'm willing to wager that if we change our perspective, just switch our perspective a little bit and see that money is not for me. It is for God's mission to the poor, to the poor specifically through me. How might that change the way I live my life? Friends, I don't know, I'm a little scared. <laughs> is this good? Is this helpful? Is this, is this wrong? Is this, you got your economic theory all messed up, man. You don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> this, is, this is unbiblical teaching. This, I think it's very biblical teaching. And I think we're trying to figure out how to do justice right as a church. If I could invite the worship team back up. You know, I've been doing pastoral ministry here in Houston now for nine years. And I've had my eye on the energy corridor for a long time. Ever since the beginning, in fact. Ever since the beginning. And we're finally here. I'm so excited about that. Now I'm starting to wonder if God is saying, Wayne, you've got your priorities all wrong. It's not the energy corridor we're looking at. It's A-Leaf. It's south Eldridge, not North Eldridge. And I'm thinking, Lord, what does this mean? You know what? Baby steps. Let's up the ante just a little bit. There's so many poor people here on the way to church, on my commute. I'm of the view that giving them money is not going to help. I just strongly am against that, personally. You can give money if it's in your conscience. Maybe from now on, I keep food, sandwiches, in my driver's side so that when I just pass all these poor people, at least give them something immediately that will help them, food. Maybe that's a baby step. I don't know. I don't know. We're doing this together, right? I mean, any ideas that we have, we're doing this together. We just need this perspective. Okay, I want to give you guys about a minute or two to just close your eyes because so much information was blasted at us. Biblical information. I believe this was preaching of the word. But it's not just preaching. It's kind of paradigm shifting. So two minutes to just, with your eyes closed, think about what this means or just... Reflect, I'm, okay, did he actually say that? <laughs> or how does this, what is it, what's next? What?